Hello and welcome to the first episode of Cannabis Conversations. I'm Michael Bancroft. Global cannabis sales hit $21 billion last year, according to analytics firm BDSA. Now that's a 48% rise from 2019 when they peaked at $14.4 billion. On this podcast, we'll seek to answer your questions about cannabis as it becomes more and more mainstream. Countries like Canada and Uruguay have legalized the drug. Soon, Mexico will join that club. In the US, recreational use of marijuana is legal in 15 states plus Washington, D.C., and medical use is legal in 36 states. That's what we're going to focus on in this conversation. The rise of medical marijuana and CBD and its efficacy in treating different conditions. More than 40 countries across the world have legalized the use of medical cannabis, but questions remain about its safety and effectiveness. To get some answers, I'm joined by Peter Grinspoon, primary care physician, author, and instructor at Harvard Medical School. Thanks for joining us, Peter. How are you today? Let's start with a simple question. Is medical marijuana safe and effective as a medicine? Uh, Yes. Now, no medicine is without any harms. Every single medication that I prescribe as a general doctor has some potential harms. But by and large, cannabis is safe and it is effective for many things, not for everybody. Nothing is effective for every indication every time you prescribe it. But generally speaking, it is safe and effective as a medicine. Can you explain the difference between medical cannabis with THC and cannabidiol? Absolutely. Now, medical marijuana or cannabis has 600 different compounds in it. It comes from the marijuana plant. And the two main compounds are THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, which makes you high, which you know people go to great lengths to seek out or some people to avoid. And the other main one is CBD. Now, CBD is a non- or cannabidiol, as you mentioned, the full name of it. CBD is a non-intoxicating component of cannabis. And many people find that they could just use the CBD for different indications, such as chronic pain, anxiety, insomnia, and a bunch of other indications. And the advantage of that is they don't have to deal with the high, the intoxication, and if they can get the benefit of it without... Uh, you know, the main side effect, which is you can't drive, you're spaced out, you can't accomplish as much, then that's a huge appeal to people. So is one more effective than the other? Yes. Generally speaking, cannabis is a lot more effective than just CBD. But then again, CBD has fewer side effects. So one way to look at it is CBD is sort of like cannabis light. A lot of times with patients, I'll start with CBD. And if CBD can do the trick, for example, for insomnia, that's great. It has fewer side effects. But then often, if CBD by itself isn't strong enough, you add a little bit of THC or you could even add just full cannabis at a low dose and manage the side effects. So it's often a case of starting out, you know, you start low and go slow to avoid side effects. You do this with every medication, but particularly with cannabis given that it can cause a high or get you stoned. But, you know, using CBD is a good way to try to avoid that altogether. And then if CBD isn't strong enough, then you could try full cannabis. So what about the difference between cannabis-derived product versus the plant itself? Well, again, cannabis has like 600 different molecules. So the U.S. government, for example, came up with Marinol, a medication, synthetic THC, because they were under a lot of pressure to come up with something to sort of 
answer the legalization movement. But nobody thinks that just THC works as well as the full plant cannabis with the 600 different molecules. There's something called the entourage effect, which means that the sum is greater than the whole of the parts. I mean, keep in mind that humans and uh, the cannabis plant have been sort of co-evolving for the last 10,000 years. We've literally used it medicinally for food, for religious sacraments for five, 10,000 years. And it just has a very intricate way of interacting with our body. And um, many people think that if you just take one molecule out, it's not going to be as effective as if you use the whole plant. And, you know, it's kind of a side note. That's why there are so many different strains that have different effects uh, because there are 600 different molecules. And if you, one has certain molecules, the other has other molecules, they're going to have slightly different effects. Some are going to make you more up, go to a party. Others are going to be better for pain, others for insomnia, others for inflammation. That's part of why it can have such a remarkable array of medical effects because there's so many different molecules that you could exploit and manipulate for medical purposes. You've mentioned a lot of medical effects. So what condition specifically is it most commonly used to treat? Well, I would say chronic pain is the the indication that I most often use medical cannabis for. Now, uh, chronic pain, there aren't good treatments for. Nobody wants to be in opiates. It's a whole show about why people don't want to be in opiates, overdose, addiction, poor quality of life, constipation. You know, Tylenol doesn't do anything. And the non-steroidals, your ibuprofen, your naproxen, they, if they don't give you a heart attack or an ulcer, will eventually kill your kidneys. I see so many patients as a general doctor in their 50s, 60s, and 70s that just are undergoing slow death of their kidneys from taking non-steroidals. So as Americans are getting older, a little bit portlier, and more arthritic as they're getting older and their knees and backs are getting painful, you could give them non-steroidals year after year after year, or you could give them a small dose of medical cannabis to control their chronic pain. You know, the side effect is terrible. It gives them a little bit of happy euphoria. Terrible. And it controls their, their pain just as well, if not better, than the non-steroidals. I think it's a lot safer. And I think that's why uh, medical cannabis is skyrocketing in euphoria. People are realizing that all the nonsense they've been taught about it by our governments over the last eight years, like 95% of it just isn't true. And in fact, as you mentioned at the very beginning of the show, it is a relatively safe and effective medication. And when we say safe, you have to ask, compared to what? Compared to the alternatives for chronic pain, compared to the alternatives for insomnia, which is another very big indication. What are you going to use? Ambien, benzodiazepines, sedatives, tricyclics? I mean, it's safer for sleep than the alternatives. So I would say, yes, it's a very safe and effective medication. And that's why people are adopting it so rapidly, particularly the elderly. As you mentioned, many patients have found relief when using medical marijuana, but there is a lack of clinical research supporting its efficacy for many illnesses. So what exactly needs to happen to change this? Well, that's interesting. I mean, the reason there's a lack of clinical evidence is because the U.S. government has prohibited all research into and wouldn't fund and wouldn't provide the cannabis for any research except research into harms uh, for the last 80 years. And it's still schedule one in the United States, which means high abuse liability, which isn't true, and no medical utility, which isn't true. So the deck has been stacked against medical cannabis, number one. Number two, 
there's a certain type of study that doctors are biased towards, which is randomized controlled placebo blinded studies. And, you know, they look for one specific thing. Does it help sleep? Does it help anxiety? Cannabis does so many things at once. It can help a patient with fibromyalgia, with their pain, with their sleep and with their mood and with their anxiety. The studies we have aren't necessarily geared up to understand the multiplicity of effects that cannabis has. So I'm not sure that we even have the right lens to look at what cannabis is doing with the traditional studies that Western medicine uses. So due to a combination of like not necessarily having the right lenses and having, you know, prohibited the research for so long. I mean, I think it's going to get better now that it's becoming legalized in sensible countries like Canada, Mexico, and Uruguay, and eventually in the United States. It's going to lighten up in the United States, so we will have more research. But it's been used for 5,000 years. People say that it works. Now, if a patient's sleeping well with cannabis, you know, I hate it when the addiction psychiatrist says, it can't be helping you sleep because there isn't a randomized double control blinded study. Like, what do you mean the patient's sleeping? I mean, patients complain all the time that they're not sleeping. What are you going to say to a patient? It's not helping your pain. Patients complain all the time that nothing helps their pain. If they're saying it helps their pain, why would you doubt them? So I think, you know, my dad was a cannabis expert. I'm like actually second generation. My dad was seminal in the legalization movement. And as my dad said, at some point, doctors are going to have to do something really radical, which is listen to and trust their patients. Even as we see countries legalize cannabis, there's still quite a lot of stigma associated with it. So how difficult is it for patients as well as doctors to actually broach the subject as a form of treatment to explore? Well, first, let me mention that that stigma was created out of competing commercial interests racism, and politics. It had nothing to do with health concerns. The American Medical Association was very much against criminalizing cannabis in 1937. They testified against it. So keep in mind, the stigma is political and racial, has nothing to do with health concerns. And then the doctors sort of like brainwashed themselves as a whole profession against it, you know, with the fact that big pharma was funding them didn't help. It's a very complicated story, but it was never based in health. And unfortunately, there is a stigma that patients have to overcome. But first of all, that's taking care of itself as so many people are having great experiences with medical cannabis and it's becoming accepted. But, you know, it's true when I see elderly patients that have never used cannabis, they come into my office and they're like, you know, draw the blinds, you know, they whisper, is a SWAT team going to come in? And I'm like, no, it's legal in Massachusetts. Don't worry, no one's going to raid the office. So we do have a lot of work to do to get over the stigma. But I think as doctors become educated and up to speed, and as more people have positive experiences, and as it becomes legalized more and more in the United States, in more countries, and for a longer period of time, the stigma is just going to work itself out because the stigma is nonsense and people are really starting to understand that. I mean, just to add one more point. 94% of Americans are in favor of legal access to medical cannabis. The stigma is not on the part of the patients. The stigma is on the part of the doctors. The doctors are so far behind the patients. So it's just a question of getting the medical providers up to speed. You've touched on cannabis being a better alternative to current medicines that are on the market. The use of medical marijuana has been touted as a solution to the opioid epidemic, 
So how suitable is it as an alternative? And are there any concerns over addiction and problematic drug use with cannabis? Well, first of all, there are concerns about addiction and problematic drug use with cannabis. Absolutely. But they've been somewhat exaggerated by the medical and addiction community. People can get dependent on it. They can get overly dependent on it. I define addiction as continued use despite negative consequences. I'd say an example of that might be a patient that has a very bad reaction, like an anxiety reaction or something called cannabis hyperemesis, where they have a rare reaction where they smoke and they start vomiting from cannabis and they can't stop. That would be someone who's like addicted to cannabis. That's continued use despite negative consequences. But it's pretty rare and it's far less addictive than alcohol or obviously opiates or many other uh, drugs of misuse. So I say people can get in trouble with cannabis, but again, it's fairly rare and it's been greatly exaggerated, but it is an issue and something to be concerned about. In terms of opiate epidemic, I think that cannabis is about as effective as opiates for chronic pain, unless it's very severe chronic pain. If it's very severe chronic pain, like you have failed back syndrome, like excruciating chronic pain, cannabis just isn't going to be strong enough. You need an opiate. But for the mild to moderate chronic pain, again, with the aging, increasingly portly American that's having back or knee pain, that cannabis is perfectly sufficient. And the way it can be helpful is you can start people on medical cannabis instead of opiates. You could transition people who are on opiates, off opiates onto medical cannabis voluntarily. You can't force anybody off opiates. That's not fair. You can lower the dose that people are on opiates up to 80% with cannabis because they co-work on the same receptors. If someone's addicted to opiates, you could use cannabis to help with withdrawal symptoms as they're being treated with buprenorphine or even methadone. It doesn't diminish their ability to stay in treatment. If anything, it, in some studies, it can even enhance it. The only way in which some people advocate using cannabis, which I'm not quite ready to get on board with, is whether it's a medication for opiate use disorder like methadone or buprenorphine. Now, with methadone and buprenorphine, it's been demonstrated that they lower overdose and death by 50 to 80%. And with cannabis, I know thousands of people that say, I use cannabis to get off opiates, but it just hasn't been demonstrated yet. And this is one area where you really do need evidence because the consequence is so grave. Now, if I treat your migraine with medical cannabis and it doesn't work, you get a migraine. But if I treat your opiate addiction with medical cannabis and it doesn't work, you could overdose and die. So I don't use cannabis in place of buprenorphine. I use buprenorphine and I just use the cannabis for withdrawal symptoms, not as a medication to get you off of heroin or fentanyl. Maybe in the future, I, I'd be surprised if they didn't show it in the future, given how many people swear by it. But that's one indication that I don't use it for. You've been very open about your struggle with opioids, even writing the book called Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Own Addiction. Had you looked at marijuana to help your own recovery? Well, it certainly helped me with withdrawal symptoms. You know, I got off opiates dozens of times. The only problem is you get back on them. And, you know, there are medications like clonidine and a bunch of others that help you with withdrawal symptoms. But when you're withdrawing from opiates, well, you can't die from it. You certainly 
feel like you want to die. It's just an awful, awful experience. Cannabis makes it so much more tolerable and it doesn't give you cravings for opiates. So I honestly can say from personal experience and from the studies I've seen, that cannabis is the most effective medication, at least in my opinion, for opiate withdrawal symptoms. So I think this is an extremely important use for cannabis. Unfortunately, we have such a drug war mentality, at least in the United States, that they test people for cannabis in these rehab programs, and they even kick people out of rehab programs for testing positive for cannabis, or in these buprenorphine programs or methadone programs. And even in these pain programs, they'll test you for cannabis, and they shouldn't even test for cannabis because there's no indication that it worsens outcomes. If anything, it might even help outcomes, and it makes the patient's more comfortable. It's such a puritanical drug war mentality. And, you know, there are a lot of people that make a fortune on drug testing. People who have even worked for the American Society of Addiction Medicine who make fortunes on drug testing. And it's such a conflict of interest. And we do way too much drug testing. And they should just leave the cannabis users alone and focus on getting people off of the opiates if they want to get off opiates, if they're addicted. And for the chronic pain patients, they shouldn't torture them either. If they need opiates, let them be on opiates. I mean, I prefer to use cannabinoids for my patients, but it's really awful. I should just mention how the U.S. government is cracking down on opiates and kicking all these patients off opiates and leaving them orphaned without any pain medications. Well, there's a lot of hype about the use of hallucinogens in mainstream media. So I'm curious... Do you have any thoughts on the use of psychedelics, especially when it comes to things like helping with mental health issues? Absolutely. I mean, I've been in favor of this. My father wrote a book called Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered in 1979, calling for the use of psychedelics in psychiatry. So I was 13 when I read this. Unfortunately, the psychiatric community took another 30 years to pick up on this, but I've been in favor of it my, literally my whole life. And I'm just so excited that this is happening. And I'm just, I read the research, I follow it, and I just, I couldn't be more excited about this. I just think it has incredible potential to help people, not just with the negative part of like treatment resistant depression, but also helping people figure out like, what's the meaning of my life and how can I be happier and more fulfilled? Not that people should necessarily be popping psychedelics like every day, but in terms of like stepping out of their routines and sort of breaking out of their like default networks and looking at the bigger picture and, and getting more connected to each other and getting more connected to nature because we're so broken up and separated. And I just think psychedelics have such potential. When I was younger, I had plenty of experiences with psychedelics and I could say that they were completely positive experiences. So I'm, I'm in favor it sounds like a lot of potential for the future of medicine. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What a great conversation. That was Peter Grinspoon, primary care physician, cannabis consultant, author, and instructor at Harvard Medical School. That's it for the show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Be sure to tune in next time when we'll answer more of your so-called burning questions about cannabis. Thanks for listening. Cannabis Conversations is supported by Yuma, a global wellness leader marketing and distributing hemp-derived and cannabinoid products around the world. Check out yuma.ca for more details.